0: Hello and welcome to the Devon Wildlife Warden podcast with me Emily Marbe. In this episode we will be talking about habitat connectivity with a special focus on the Devon Wildlands Initiative. I will also be bringing you the latest news from the Wildlife Warden Scheme as well as dates for your diary and ideas for what you can do to support your local wildlife. But first of all, what exactly is the Devon Wildlands Initiative? Well, Here's Kate Morley, one of the founders, who can tell you just that.
1: I'm Kate Morley. I guess you'd say I'm the founder of Devon Wildland, and uh, I also have some land over at Longdown, which we're rewilding, and we're seeing nature return on our land, but it got us thinking about where this nature goes and whether it can spread. So the idea is, is that I contacted um, the three core sites, which is Devon Wildland, um, That's us, and then there's Embercombe, which is sort of midway along the Holden Ridge, and then we've got Mam Head on the far end of the Holden Ridge. So to create a connected landscape for nature, using those three core sites as stepping stones, but then talking to landowners in between us to say how they can make more space for nature. So not necessarily just rewilding, although the three core sites are rewilding, we're looking at sort of working with landowners to say, are there areas of their land that they can make more space for nature, yeah.
0: We'll be hearing more from Kate in this episode, and we'll also be hearing from her co-founder Laura Fairs, who was kind enough to lead a walk and talk about the initiative later in the podcast. The Devon Wildlife Warden Scheme is run by Action on Climate in Teambridge, or ACT for short. The idea is to have wardens in every parish or ward who can help their wildlife in a wide variety of ways. I am the Wildlife Warden for Abbots as Kurzweil, but we have many others and are always looking for more. We do all sorts of things, from promoting wildlife gardening and recording local wildlife sightings, to working with clubs and schools and commenting on local planning applications, and much, much more. It's all about each warden doing what they feel is necessary in their area, and which lies within their comfort zone. ACT's Wildlife Warden Scheme would not be possible without the generous assistance of our donors, details of which can be found in the episode notes. Many thanks to them all. So, to start us off, why is this episode focusing on habitat connectivity? Well, if you've listened to previous episodes, you'll have heard me banging on about the importance of connecting habitats. This is because our landscape has become increasingly fragmented, and this doesn't leave many options for wildlife when they need to move from one area to another. Why do they need to do this? Well, as they breed and create bigger communities, just like us humans, they need somewhere for their offspring to live, and many species will need to disperse to new areas to do this because the resources on their doorstep are unlikely to support a growing population. There are also other factors to consider such as climate change. As our climate warms, many species need to move to areas which offer more optimum conditions for their survival. We are seeing huge numbers of examples of this with many species gradually moving north to cooler climes, For example, we now have moths living in the UK, which were only seen as far north as France until recent years. And while that's okay for some species which can fly, terrestrial species, or those which can't fly far without stopping for food and rest, may not fare as well. And this is why we need to consider how they will get from one area to another, and this is exactly where habitat connectivity comes in. But how do we connect habitats to each other? Well, we first need to identify the habitats which have become fragmented and then we need to look for a way to connect them together. And this might be done using more wildlife friendly management strategies with existing hedgerows and roadside verges for example, or it may involve creating green bridges or new wilder spaces between those habitats. And this is where that buzzword rewilding comes in. By trying to rewild spaces between fragmented habitat we can offer wildlife a fighting chance of survival in an increasingly challenging world. And this is exactly what Kate Morley and Law Affairs are attempting to do with their Devon Wildlands Initiative. ACTS 4Fs, Food, Farming, Forestry and Fisheries Group, recently organised a visit to Embercombe, which is one of the core rewilding sites for this particular initiative. And the aim was to learn all about it, and I was fortunate enough to be invited along. The day began with Laura telling us a bit about Embercombe before taking us for a walk around the site. I got some recordings but it was a wet and windy day so as usual please excuse the sound quality in places.
2: Embercombe was founded about 23 years ago by a chap called Mac McCartney and we run programs, courses, events, experiences, uh, ceremony, and we also uh, offer venue hires so people come here and run their own programs. Um, when Mac founded MP Coon his vision was to have a farm where people could come and learn to be connected to the land, be, you know, learn about looking after animals, growing food, and tending the land. Um, and um, for many years, that's what happened here. And about four years ago, a decision was taken to move away from food production and to allow the land to regenerate for wildlife.
3: We
0: then went off for a walk around the site, stopping first in a field to get a feel for what Embercombe is and to hear a bit more about the Devon Wildlands Initiative.
2: When Embercombe was founded, this was a, a, well, a chap owned all this land and all of the land around, you can see, that's ours, apart from woodland, was just grassland. And it was very much grassland like that hill over there that you can see um very short sward one big field no internal fencing at all no hedges no trees and the chap that owned it prior to us he wasn't interested in the land so he just let the land out to be grazed by sheep and he was a slightly eccentric chap apparently who that where we were standing was an aircraft hangar well both the buildings were where he built and he built himself an aircraft and then the driveway where he came in was very straight and he would fly his aircraft off at the end of the <laughs> runway and over the valley and then crash into somebody's field and then get the farmers <laughs> to drag it out and bring it back up and put it all back together again. Anyway, so the land when it was when we founded Embercoon was yeah very um, heavily grazed, one big space with no one really putting much investment into the land other than just letting some sheep graze it. So and then the woodlands, the broadleaf woodland that you can see here is ours as well up to the road and then goes on to Halden Forest beyond that. Um, So we set about um, planting hedges, planting trees, moving some mud around to make the banks and build the tracks and, and then establish the two are two accommodation villages. So we've got one village over here, and there's another village over there, which we probably won't see today. But and these are our yurt villages where people stay when they come on the programmes and the courses. We are well. We're sort of we are sort of rewilding. I suppose the, the phrase I like to use is regenerating the land using rewilding principles, because we're not a true rewilding project in the sense of sort of closing the gates and and not and then having a hands-off approach. We're quite a small site, so to have a true rewilding approach would be quite difficult here. Plus, we have people coming on the land for programmes. Um, so we are adopting some rewilding approaches and we're adopting some traditional land practices such as the hedge laying, which you can see where we've just come past as well. And although that the decision to turn away from food production towards uh, wildlife biodiversity was only made a few years ago. In many ways this site has been rewilding for the last 20 years because the trees have already been planted and you know um, people often say to me oh you're gonna plant some trees we've sort of, well we've already planted thousands and thousands of trees so actually what we're doing now is very much just trying to cre- recreate some natural processes on the land and, le- and let the land lead rather than trying to have trees here or um, necessarily have a plan of what what will happen next and one of the steps we've taken is that we had a flock of sheep here and we've reduced the numbers right down we have still got just three left that were the grandmothers of the flock and the team here didn't feel comfortable getting rid of them so we've we've just agreed to let them live out the rest of their lives here Um, as long as they're healthy then they can stay the the bulk of the of the breeding flock we moved on last year off off the land. We sold them to a regenerative farmer so that they could go and be useful somewhere else. And some of the things that we have done is we had some pigs on the land last year in a compartment that's still fenced just to bring a bit of disruption and try and mimic that of the wild boar that are missing from the landscape. So we are quite fortunate in a way that Embercombe is already quite wildlife rich because of all these different elements that have been created here with the hedges and the trees and the grassland. We've got a lake, we've got a lovely broadleaf woodland, which has been largely untouched by deer, which is quite unusual around here. And actually last year we had a a full plant survey of the whole site and that resulted in um, the woodland and one of our meadows being classified as a county wildlife site just last month which is really great news. And my belief is that's is because the site's been deer fenced for such a long time so the woodland has stayed intact. Introducing the Devon Wildland, which I think is was really the thing we wanted to talk about today. The Devon Wildland is an initiative to um, try and create, facilitate, enable a tract of land across this area of unbroken, connected sites that are being managed sensitively for wildlife or making space for nature in some way and that can be alongside forestry it could be with farming could be with rewilding could be with community orchards and we're trying to link up sites so that biodiversity has a, has a corridor to live in across this area and the basis of that we're using is from Kate will correct me, the IUCN, IUCN principles, which is about having core sites and then connected bits between that. So Embercombe is one of the core sites. Kate's Land up at Long Down is another one. And then Mamhead, which many of you will know, is, is at the other end of the ridge. So the idea that we're aspiring to is to create a connected unbroken ridge of land that wildlife can move around in cross from Longdown to manhood and kate has been very busy i've been a little bit busy talking to landowners that are in that area who may wish to if you like sign up to this initiative i mean i'm the reason why i'm using slightly vague language is because we're not employed we don't have any money and we're not part of an organization so you know we don't have a an agenda of an organisation that's driving this it's, it's actually about a genuine desire to create a more resilient landscape for wildlife in this area do you want to
1: yeah i think it's about sort of um, as a collective need really to look at the landscape I and mean, there's been so many different projects in the area like the soil bunting project has been going for years there's been so many good landowner initiatives which has been done but the problem is, is when that project comes to an end, the sort of momentum gets lost, really. And so, rather than it being a top-down process, it's about actually being a, a bottom-up process, really. So, with our site, I mean, we're not trying to get too keyed up with the whole concept of rewilding, because rewilding is such a, it's such a fluid thing. There are key principles which underpin it, but in this country, because we are an island things cannot move in without some sort of human interaction and making a decision that whether we're happy to see certain animals in the landscape really. So whilst the three core sites, us at Longdown, we're doing rewilding quite differently than Ember is doing it, quite differently to Mamped's doing it. But it's not being about prescriptive or spending lots of time and energy saying whether one way is the best way. What we're hoping is actually over time that we will learn from each other, be able to share that knowledge. But it's actually from a Devon Wildlands perspective not focusing solely on rewilding. It's actually looking at a connectivity across the landscape. So for instance, how would a Pine Martin get from our, our land to Mounthead? And the first thing which comes to mind is oh, oh Crikey, now hang on a second, think about all those barriers which that pine martin had to get across the landscape, across the ridge. And you know the A380, you've got pylons through the landscape, you've got historic, um, we've got um, you know, hill forts which have, been, have to be managed in a certain way, but rather than constantly saying, shrugging our shoulders and saying, yeah, this cannot be done, it's actually saying, look, actually let's get out right onto the land, speak to people and say, okay. These might be your aims for your land, but actually, can we create certain pockets of your land where it's going to be critical that this links up with the next pocket of land and the next pocket of land? So it's actually the reality of getting a species from our land across to Mamhead, and it's been really, really interesting. so with the, the basis of it is the cores, which are our three sites and hopefully over time there'll be other cores which will be managing their land for nature. Um, but literally the connectivity and also the coexistence. So for instance with Mamhead, I don't know whether anybody's familiar with what Philip Letts is doing over there, that there is some sort of, um, it's a subscription service where people in London can get a, 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 a shot of nature. Every Friday afternoon, uh, so they subscribe. They pay the pay uh, let safaris money, and then he's investing that money in buying other sites and also paying for, for reintroductions of species. So, it's sort of looking at sort of the bigger picture really. Um, and also, we're hoping to work with Exeter University about mapping the area to see actually what areas of this land are used and how we can improve the connectivity. So it's it's you know it's the core rewilding aspect but you know also amongst that landscape we have Forestry commission so we're talking to the Forestry commission actually how we can get this ribbon of a wilder landscape so for instance you know there'll be areas where they'll be continuing their traditional forestry practices but there'll be areas where for instance we can almost sort of say this area here is critical for the collectivity really so that's really um, the idea is trying not to be prescriptive to say you mustn't be doing this, you mustn't be doing that. It's actually saying actually mm-hmm. let's try and work together and actually get this, this connectivity going really.
2: Yeah. Um, and also trying to learn from those other landowners who do have another aim for their land, but are willing to make space for nature so that we can try these, well not try, but use these different approaches, but that can still provide a connectivity. Has anyone got any questions on yeah, that? before I have we have question.
4: Um, we, we had um, a trip out uh, to the Forestry Commission site, uh, the college, and um, I asked about the idea of, because um, in Holland, they have lots of eco-ducts. Okay. Because obviously in terms of connectivity, yeah. to get across these roads, I just wondered if the idea of, of the eco-duct is actually still on the table or whether that's already been...
2: Yeah, so a a, a, a few years ago there was actually a um, feasibility study done on building a green bridge across the A38, Um, and it's it's a great report, and it's sat there on the shelf. Um,
1: It's got buried. That's the thing. You know, this is the problem with projects. You know, I spoke to um, uh, the highways England. Oh, I'm not sure whether it's actually been settled or no. I spoke to devon county council though right. know there's been never a report yeah. done and then literally the next day i got it in my inbox that mm-hmm. from highways england that one person i just happened to speak to was involved yeah. in it and yeah. um, there was discussion there's discussion in about the fact that the middle of the carriageway yeah. is really high populations of door mice, door mice and that by yeah. by yeah. by building that carriageway yes there'll be some disruption to that mm. so but what was really interesting is that you know if you start talking about green bridges in this country people say well, it's not really really you know very realistic got to find the funding for that but what was also very interesting is they did a feasibility of including it with cycle tracks. So mm-hmm. connecting up the Holden Ridge from a cycle track mm-hmm. point of view, mm-hmm. suddenly that opens up a huge amount of prospect of getting funding to do it because mm-hmm. it means that actually they've costed it, that actually it would bring in so many millions of pounds with mm-hmm. the increase in cycle weight. Okay, you know, you've got the impacts of that yeah, on nature It's not on perfect, now, it's that, yeah. it's not yeah. perfect yeah. you know. It's it's than right. than what it is. You know, yeah. if you, yeah. you go to you yeah, know, I've been to Poland and I've seen Wolf Crossings, you yeah. know. Know, over there where they've had a huge investment you know in infrastructure yet yeah. you can't even get a sign for a hedgehog over here you know yeah. but you know <laughs> no, but if hard. you frame it if you frame it and we can get these people involved and say actually rather than constantly saying well it's not very realistic actually you no know, there is a realistic possibility of actually happening you know making it happen really yeah. and I think if you have that groundswell of, of enthusiasm and actual real people on the ground who want to see this happen and put the political pressure on it, I think it will happen.
0: We then went down into the woods and stopped by a small watercourse. This opened up an interesting discussion around funding opportunities for rewilding, and why Laura prefers to be a proxy beaver for now, rather than attempt to reintroduce this species at Embercombe.
2: So yes, one of the challenges, as I'm sure all of you know, is getting funding for doing work on land. I've been doing a bit of this bankside coppicing work, which is under the RPA Capital Grants Scheme, and it's it's sort of if you like it's like the most lightweight of the Agri Environment Schemes, and you get some money for reforesting trees along a watercourse, and lots of people will say to me, you know, could we have beavers at Embercoom and we could spend thousands of pounds on putting a fence around Embercloom and have some beavers in here, but one of the things I feel quite strongly, and again this links in with the sort of the con the I guess the uh, ethos of the Devon Wildland is this stream is not ideal for beavers it's a bit steep sided we don't have there's a couple of little tributaries coming in but not not many they don't particularly like being on these steep sided um devon goyles and also what's happened is over the years the trees along it have become very mature so whilst the beavers are perfectly capable of felling those trees there's nothing really for them to eat in the meantime so um what i felt quite strongly is that we, sh- we don't need to be all things to all people. So what we can do is make this site more suitable for beavers when they make their way onto the team. Now, And I say when very deliberately because, you know, now beavers are living wild in East Devon. And I believe that there will be more permissions given for beavers to live in enclosures across the country. It's already happening there will eventually come a time where there will be beavers probably on the team and this feeds into the team. And what would happen is once, I mean, I'm talking, you know, many years away is this is the type of habitat that one of the juveniles would be pushed into in their, where they first leave the colony. It's suboptimal, but they can survive here in small numbers and then they would move up to a more dominant and then they'd go and take up a more prime position. So some of this coppicing work, if you like, is about improving the habitat Generally, it will be, you know, it will be better in here for butterflies this summer in these areas. But also it's about thinking about connecting up those land, the landscape in a, for the future. So we're getting beaver ready.
0: And as a wildlife warden myself, I was interested in how to start conversations about things like habitat connectivity and land management with local farmers and landowners. So I couldn't resist getting a question in myself. Which then led to an interesting conversation about the plight of farmers and how important it is to listen and understand the position of others before barrelling in with suggestions for how to improve things.
3: We've got a lot of farmers
0: in our parish, and um, I want to approach them and talk about how we might help with some of the, as I say, hedgerows that could do with connecting different habitats and things, but I don't really know how to approach them or, you know, because they obviously have their own way of doing things and I'm just an interference. <laughs> <laughs> so.
1: and I think you know, I, th- I think the biggest challenge for, 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 for me, certainly, over when I started this, was finding out who owned what land. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at my family, who we've been on our land for over 100 years, my great grandmother was widowed when the youngest was two, so she, she was a farmer and she was a farmer on her own, which was very unusual back then to be a female. But she knew her neighbours because she went to church and she knew that if a farmer left a cow to, to die in the corner of his field because it was neglectful, then that would be some sort of social pariah. Um, and, you know, everybody knew everybody. And now, you know, over the last 50 years even, it's changed so much that, you know, you have these huge farm holdings and the people who perhaps sheep are on it are... You know, they live, you know, 50 miles away. Certainly our next-door neighbour with the sheep, um, you know, if they break into our fields that, you know, you've got to call them and they're down, sort of down towards Tymmouth Way. So it's really hard to actually get, you know, to that, that understanding of who owns what, really. Um, and I think what's really interesting about this period of time is we're in this huge, huge change with the subsidies, you know, and nobody knows what's happening. And it's really, really... I mean I, I know everyone sort of farmer bashes, but it is really important to understand that they are people too and that there's been a lot of mental health crisis within rural areas. I wouldn't say it's just restricted to to, to farmers, you know, if I speak to our, our um, agricultural um, contractor who comes and cuts our, our heads, because if you, if you look at our heads, you know, on one side it's, it's been shorn because we're on a main road. And that is what we are required to do. If you look on the other side of the hedge, you know we have masses of blackthorn scrub. Um, but you know this chap is—he does the, all of the hedges in our parish, and he sits in that cab. Of and he's—you know—he says to me, Kate, okay, it's a really lonely existence. You know, in that short period of time, you suddenly have had sort of people out on the land which used to do you know, um, hedge laying, and suddenly you've got one man who is being paid to get round as quickly as he can to do all of the parish hedges. And, you know, and he, you know, he has a family and there is a sensitivity really, which is needed. And I think, you know, there's absolutely huge amount of of different organisations out there which will offer landowners advice. But actually, it's actually that social pressure, which is really important and it's also sort of the generational pressure um, because a lot of these farmers maybe have been on the land and their father and their grandfather have managed it in a certain way and has made it look very neat and tidy and then to suddenly go along and let all that go is a huge thing, you know, it's a big, big issue really. Um, And you know, that. That, you know, the problem is, is you give yourself brain ache when you actually start looking at the layers of complexity, things like inheritance tax on agricultural land, you know, that feeds into the whole system. So I think the biggest thing and I think where COVID has had a big impact is actually being able to go out and speak to people and actually have those conversations with people in the pub and have those conversations to sort of, you know, to find out what their attitudes are on pine martins and things like that. Um, rather than being you know I, I would say that the biggest thing farmers face at the moment is everybody telling them what to do. Mm, to seek try and understand their position. Yeah,
5: you've
4: got a flag here obviously I can't help but I'd love, love to hear your opinion on,
5: on this subject. Yeah I mean I, I, I agree with what you said it's, it's, it's really difficult I mean I think what I, I chuckled very briefly when you said that everyone's telling farmers what to do because mm-hmm. they are and um, of that myself. Um, it, I think just approaching it sensitively is, is the most important thing to do. Mm. And yeah, as I said, just remember that people as well, and, and they have been there a long time. Um,
4: but off, off like um, doing proactive visits. I, I know, for example, that you've got these catchment area projects going on where, yeah. where you're sort of getting.
5: I mean, I wouldn't be aware of all of the projects that we have across no, no, no. the whole organisation, um, but yeah. Are you, are you waiting different. for
4: farmers to contact you, for them to say, actually, I need some help with this, can you help me with it? And as a member, I think they would you would give them advice, would you, right. and, like changes in the legislation?
5: Yeah, and it, and it does work the other way as well. So there's some projects where we will go out and, and try and engage with them. Yeah. Um, quite often they are specifically catchment based. Uh, or, or pollution-based issues. So in Somerset, there's some um, quite important phosphate issues yeah. around some of the rivers. So we, you know, work with other organisations to, to, to um, yeah. engage with farmers about it. And,
4: and as, is it generally a positive response, or is it very mixed? Or
5: um, what you'll find is farmers are very um, financially motivated. Yeah. So what you mean is they're very
3: poor. Well, yes. Yeah.
5: <laughs> <laughs> we all need to make a living,
4: yeah. so that's totally understandable. We do, yeah. But yeah. They're,
5: they're, they're cash poor yeah. and they're capital rich. Yes. Which and doesn't help. No. no. Um, uh, so if there's some um, short-term financial gain to be made, then yeah. they're generally interested. Yeah. Um, and and some of them, you know, obviously are, are very interested in the wildlife side as well, yeah. um, which is fantastic, maybe. A lot, a lot of farmers that I speak to are just you know, very motivated to, to do things for wildlife, which is great, yeah. but some are not.
3: As a farmer, for fifth, well I started 54 years ago, and I've been a member of FWAG for 52 years, I think. Wow,
4: deserve um, a I, the middle.
3: Well, I don't know if I deserve anything. I've both hurt wildlife and realised I've hurt it yeah. and, and changed. Yeah. But what I would say to anyone who wants to help farmers is first of all, listen to them. Yeah. Ask them, don't say, what the hell are you trashing all your hedges for? Say to them, tell, tell me about your land. Mm. Tell me how you're farming it. And just listen to them and have that conversation about better ways in about six months' time and about 15 or 20 pints of beer on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think there's an element as well. There's a huge element of we're human beings we like to think we can actually... Mm go out there and, and have a timetable for these things but
3: mm-hmm.
1: a lot of it comes down to shifting baseline syndrome it really does mm-hmm. so in other words when we started rewilding our land um we had neighbors say don't know what you're doing mm-hmm. um because you it looks it looks a, a sodding mess and um but you know we've got a huge amount of nature coming back now but what's really interesting is the other the other um neighbor is now re- rewilding his land so um, you know, so it's actually, he's, he's seen what we're doing. It, it, you know, here we are years later. Um, you know, that was probably about 10 years ago. And he's saying, actually, it's not so horrific. So it really is about having that shifting baseline Mm -hmm. and saying actually what people have normalised in the landscape. What's quite interesting at the moment is that what we've normalised with very sort of square hedges and everything has happened very quickly. We've normalised that very quickly. So it's actually saying, you know, this is why these sorts of visits are really important. And that's why it's great to have core sites so you can take people and say, look, this is what it looks like. It's not quite so offensive. And that's why it's really great that, as I say, it's a bottom up approach that you can use those farmers, which are keen to. And it's really interesting is I thought I must be a bit of a nutter. And when you start talking to to farmers who have a very traditional way, they have thousands of acres and they've had a shoot on it and they have everything on it. And there's almost this competition, whereas You know, what was really interesting, I just happened to mention silbuntings. buntings. It's like, yeah, well, I've got silbuntings. buntings. Yeah, but I've got silbuntings. buntings. It becomes this whole sort of competitive thing that actually they're they're really keen to say, and that's probably the NEP effect. I've had those same landowners who own big, big holdings say, ah, yeah, but NEP is doing this, NEP is doing that, you know. But these rewilding sites, it does give those opportunities for people to say, how could this possibly work on my own land, you know? How would I feel if I let this little bit here, which is a pain to get the tractor into? Um, you know there's all these issues that come into it really you know like our neighbours we've had you know in our parish we've had three tractor deaths where the tractors rolled because the land is so steep it's really really hard to farm it now when people see that they know that that bloke they used to meet down the pub has died because they've been trying to manage their land in a completely unsustainable way it's tiny little things like that which make a huge difference really rather than someone going in and saying you know i know all about this and you should be doing that really
2: um, I guess I just wanted to echo as well, really, what, well, what you've all said, but all do as well, particularly. I think, you know, your question was, I'd like to go and talk to the farmers, but I don't know what to say. It's mm. like, just go and ask them, you know, say hello and, and ask them what they, what motivates them and, and introduce yourself, you know, because they probably don't know who you are either. Right. You know, these conversations that we're having and they're having with you are equally important you know it's not about us going and telling them what we think they should do it's about hearing their stories Mm. as well I was working on a project in East Devon for a long time before I came here and I've just gone back and done a little bit of extra work and the chap that I've been talking to he's an arable farmer and his father died when I was working there before really old you know and I was asking him how he was you know how he was getting us kind of a year later and and he started telling me some stories about his dad and 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 these stories are only in very much within reaching of our lifetime and yet they're being lost you know and so hear those stories hear what they've got to say about how they how that farms changed over such a short period of time mm. and you will learn so much about not only about them but about the land and about farming in general you know because we don't know it all and i think that's one of the biggest problems is going so, well, did you know that you should be getting beavers or, you know, you need to have bigger margins? Or There's probably a really good reason why they don't have bigger margins. Now, you might not agree with that reason, but to them, that is their reason. And until you have that conversation, you won't understand them and they won't understand you. So I think it is just about having a dialogue. And if it takes 15 years to get to the stage where they're willing to give up the field that isn't very productive, then so be it. You know, it's better than going in and pissing them off because then it'll be 25 years before they even exactly. So yeah, it really is about remembering that we are all human and, and, and I think we probably have more to learn from them than they do from us. To be. And, so. and
3: don't assume that farmers own their land. Mm. Half of the farmers are tenants. I was a tenant mm. for 25 years. Mm. So I, I wasn't capital rich, couldn't easily get overdrafts and spent the whole 25 years in which I raised my little children. Until they were a bit bigger, um, with an enormous overdraft and tremendous anxiety about going bust,
2: and probably mm. quite limited as to what you could have done as well, because Absolutely. your landlord
3: was defining
2: cha- the things that you Absolutely. were allowed to do. So again, yeah. even just learning that about someone is yeah, like, yeah, yeah. okay, so that's not the person really that you need to talk to. It's the person, <laughs> the next person Thanks along, you know. Yeah,
3: so. yeah. I, I always feel, although I'm here for wildlife, and you know, the wildlife warden scheme is my baby. At the same time, I am a farmer, I've been a farmer for all those years and I feel, I can prickle and I feel like other farmers do and I feel, oh yeah. God, they're getting at me again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. Even though I've been throwing my farm mm. open since 1971 mm. to the public, mm. yeah. I still feel vulnerable. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I was going to ask John, have you got anything to contribute as a landowner yourself? Thank you. So I was um, wanting to do a
5: bit of a shout out for wildlife wardens. Um, I should have been here today with our wildlife warden, we farm at the bottom end of Ashton and uh, she's making a real difference just by very patiently, very quietly
2: pointing out to people some of the things that are changing. On, on our farm I could rely until probably three or four years ago on
5: skylarks every summer and I haven't seen one for the last three years. Similarly we've lost the cuckoo. And, uh, I think those sorts of messages do get through to uh, even the most uh, stolid characters who are earning the living from the land. So mm-hmm. I, I would very much encourage wildlife wardens in your own parish mm-hmm. to have the sort of conversations that Laura's talking about. Mm. Oh, lovely to hear that. Mm-hmm.
3: And, and Can I say, uh, the reason why we set up, we got a bit of funding to set up farmers meetings so there's a lot of wildlife wardens here but originally that meeting is one of the meetings for farmers is to create that conversation so people get together and see what other people are doing and start a conversation because there is a lot of that uncertainty of what is going to happen and it's exchanging ideas and like the one we had in Chudley there was a lot of yeah, people getting together and, and talking, and 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 I think that's that's really important. So, yeah. it, like, it's creating opportunities for that, that discussion and the yeah. idea flow. That, that, that's without, without pressure, yeah, without stressing out us
4: versus them, and knowing that if we want to help wildlife, we you know agriculture is as important. We need to all work together to that common. Gold, don't that's we, what Devlin all about it's yeah. not
1: necessarily just being land owned. it's about trying to get you know wildlife wardens on board as well to actually realize their local knowledge is so critical you know who owns what uh so that if for instance we get a spot where we've got this area of connectivity that we don't know hopefully I'll be getting in touch with the wildlife warden in that area and saying look you know what's your you know what's your knowledge of this area because you know it comes back to a wonderful book about braiding sweetgrass is an incredible book and it's about basically you know the, th- the three sa- strands of reciprocity and how we will improve life is to basically look at science says so that's sort of the ecology I guess uh, so the science of it all um, but it's also about sort of the nature um, but the, tr- the third strand is naturalized knowledge now we're very very worried in this country about talking about indigenous Um, for obvious reasons why we don't like talking about indigenous but there is a value for naturalized knowledge in other words knowing your patch so that is why each wildlife warden is so important of knowing their parish and knowing actually what's going on what wildlife is there but also understanding sort of topography also understanding whether there's historic you know environment there. there's so many things where it's really important that this tiny focus suddenly has a huge importance for, for Devon wildland so that when you go along the ridge you'll actually got this real solid knowledge of underpinning of, of what it's all about so it's really you know I've, i feel very strongly in this country that we've kind of lost that and we were almost a bit embarrassed to mention naturalized knowledge about the fact that actually. You know, And that's what's been amazing about COVID is that suddenly people were out walking in their local area and they had this sudden understanding of the importance of their local area to them, really. Um, And I think that's really what Devon Wildland's all about. It's not about just a farming network or a landowning network. It's actually bringing people in and saying, actually, your knowledge of this landscape is what's going to tie it all together, really.
0: By this time, everyone was getting a bit cold and soggy, so we headed back to the yurt for a cuppa, slice of cake, and a chance to ask any last questions before rounding off the day.
2: Um, but yeah, is anyone got any other questions they want to ask, either about that or, or anything else, or, or wildlife, or
3: rewilding? Uh, the...
2: What happened with your pigs? Was it successful? Yes, it was successful, yes, is yes. the short answer. Yeah. Um, but you need to get in the rewilding mindset of what's successful, so we had them they did stuff and then they went away again so yes they've made some exciting changes to our fields Ooh, okay. they've done lots of rootling and they've made some bear patches and yeah. they've made some piles of yeah, but for grass yeah, yeah. yeah
4: did you guys do any sort of um, before and after surveys like maybe earthworms or soil sampling mm. you know, just to see what the difference was
2: yeah so last year i started doing surveys on the land i haven't done everything just um, because of time yeah. um, but yes we've done. We have done, Embercoom um, is partnering with something called Ecosystem Restoration Camps, which is a global organisation about regenerating land, and they have a, um, they've been developing a monitoring and um, evaluation scheme, yeah. and last year was the f- first year, and Coombe was one of the pilots, so we did do some soil work and some earthworm counts and stuff as part of that, um, and we're going to repeat, they sort of, they did five sites around internationally, and we've all put all our stuff together, and we've sort of streamlined it a little bit, and we're going to repeat it again this year. So yeah, we are yes. starting.
4: You we're end up with like quantifiable mm-hmm. evidence of the benefits of yeah. rootling on your land. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this is. It's exactly. really I, I completely agree with you, and this is one thing that you know data is really important. And of course, we can collect data now, and it won't be useful for ten, twenty years. But it's really important that we've got that, so we can you know evidence it, because some people will talk the language of data and evidence but i do also and this is my personal view i mean i've been working in nature conservation for 25 years okay and there is a little part of me which is like how much more evidence do we need before we get on and start undoing some of the damage that's been done we know that those processes are missing from the land and we know that there are consequences of that in a negative direction So yes, I firmly believe that monitoring and evaluation is important, but I also think we need to get off our backside, pull our fingers out of our ears, and realise that there is an enormous amount of damage being done to our wildlife. And we do know some of the things that we need to do. We also need to learn by letting it show us as well, you know. And I, I, I'm a little bit cynical from working in nature conservation for such a long time of people saying, well have you thought about not doing anything to that field and seeing what happens it's like we know what will happen if we carry on grazing that field with a hundred sheep damage is what will happen so you know it we need to also get on and do some of the restoration work as well as monitoring it at the same time because we've spent a long time wondering what's going to happen and we know now it's not really working, and you know, yeah. although there's great work going on, we are losing wildlife at an alarming rate, and yeah. we need to do something about
1: it quickly. Yeah, it's like Caroline Lucas says, you know, we'll be the first species which measures our own extinction, yeah, <laughs> and that's you know, that's it, you know. And I think also, you know, we do do camera trapping at our home, and we, you know, if someone had said to what we had I would say yeah, we've got deer and possibly foxes, but yeah. you know, now we have polecats, you know, we have glowworms, we have, you know, a huge amount, we have dormice, we've got loads of stuff, otters, you know, loads of stuff happening, but actually, that that gives me this feeling of awe, which is what rewilding is all about, you know, or making a wild landscape, this awe of the fact that nature is returning, it's not necessarily about how many of everything we've got, really, and I think that's what, you know, making a wild landscape does, is it sort of gives us something, gives us hope that actually, we are doing something.
4: And I think that's what it is. It isn't so much about counting the numbers, but about seeing the changes. So that that, that, that then sets a positive sends a positive message for people to and join I was just saying, the it's movement.
1: About, it's about overspill. What I call the overspill effect. That what I'm doing. You know. You know. We're rewilding, but one of our bigger state neighbours has suddenly planted a field up with with bird seed mix. So we're suddenly seeing huge flocks of birds, and we're thinking, "Wow, well, rewilding's working!" We're having these huge <laughs> flocks of birds. And actually, you know what we're doing feeds into what he's doing, and yeah. what he's doing feeds into what we're doing. So that's why it's actually really important to stop looking at ourselves as isolational and saying, "Actually, what we're doing is having this percentage increase." It's actually saying, as a parish, as a as a, as a unit yeah. of Whatever Devon Wildland, we're having this overspill effect where things move and flourish you know, that's that's really the key to
4: it
0: really. mm-hmm. a huge thanks again to laura and kate for allowing me to come along and make some recordings it really was an interesting afternoon and your initiative is just so worthwhile i hope it's a huge success and we do hope to get an update from you on how it's going sometime in the future Moving on, there are a couple of other initiatives I want to mention which are related to identifying and linking up wild spaces, so they seem to fit rather well into this particular podcast. One is being run by the Wildlife Trusts. What they're doing is creating a map of areas across the UK that shows where people want to see nature recover, or where nature needs a help to recover more quickly. In the future, these areas could help to form a sort of wild belt of protected areas, And these green spaces would allow nature to thrive, as well as helping to soak up carbon emissions and helping with extreme weather events too. The second one is being run by the Devon Rewilding Network. Now, they're a group of people in Devon who are interested in rewilding, and you do need to join up to access their materials, but they are also creating a map of wild spaces in Devon with the aim of creating more space and accessibility for wildlife. As usual, I will include a link in the episode notes for both of these in case you'd like to take a look or get involved. If you want to look closer to home and support your parish or ward in creating joined up wild spaces for wildlife, a good place to start would be by looking at maps. Satellite maps of your area can give you a good idea of where woodlands, meadows, hedgerows and other green spaces currently exist, and you can also get an idea of how they're connected by looking at Extended hedgerow networks, road verges that run between them, and any other green spaces that might join them up. And if you can identify areas which lack a corridor for nature to move through, perhaps you can work with local councils, farmers, or landowners to figure out a way to help link up different sites for wildlife. Although this can be a bit of an ambitious project, it's one that can add a lot of value for wildlife, so it really is well worth thinking about if you have the time and the inclination. Or if you want to keep things a bit more simple, you can just try to make a more wild space for yourself at home, and that will in turn provide wildlife with a stepping stone. You could do this by simply leaving an area of your garden more wild, or by doing things like cutting hedges less frequently, or leaving grass to grow for more of the year. There are a ton of ideas out there for wildlife gardening, so I won't go into them now, but creating your own oasis for nature can really help in the fight against nature's decline. Moving on and as usual I put feelers out to ask if there were any other wildlife wardens with anything they'd like to contribute for the podcast. I did hear from Robin in Idiford who's doing a slug pellet amnesty. Now if you weren't already aware metaldehyde slug pellets are going to be illegal from the end of this month which is great news for wildlife because the poisonous pellets not only kill slugs but they can also harm other animals which eat the slugs such as hedgehogs toads and song thrushes. So now is a great time to have a look in your garage or shed to see if you have any of these pellets to dispose of. If you find some and live in Idiford, Robin is happy to collect them up for you and get rid of them, and I'm happy to do the same here in Abbotts as well. But if you aren't fortunate enough to have a wildlife warden handy to do this for you, all you need to do is take them to your local recycling centre where they will be disposed of safely provided that you don't have more than five litres of them, which would then be classed as commercial waste. Here in abbots Kerswell, we also have been busy organising an orchard tidy up, and we're also working towards doing a churchyard survey as a first step in helping out our church to become an eco-church. We also heard back from the Hedgetag trial, which you may recall me mentioning in the last episode. Sadly, the trial was not a success and hedge tags will not be created from offcuts of sales in future. This is partly because the fabric started to snag and fragment in some cases, which posed a potential risk to other wildlife. And it also meant that there was a possibility that plastic fragments would be dispersed into the environment, which obviously isn't a great thing. So it was worth a go, and it was a good idea to try and reuse offcuts that would other be otherwise be going in the bin anyway, but on this occasion, it didn't work out. And just to finish off this episode, there are a few events coming up that I wanted to mention. The first is being run by the Dartmoor Local Nature Partnership. They have an online webinar taking place on the 29th of March from 9.30am until 11.30am and the topic is Nature's Role in Tackling the Climate Crisis. This event is free to sign up for and I will stick a link in the episode notes. Dartmoor National Park are also organising events again that you can actually go along to, a sure sign that this pandemic must finally be waning. They are running a public bio-blitz which is an event where people record as much wildlife as possible at a specific location. And they're doing one at Haytor on Saturday the 7th of May and another at Yarna Wood on Sunday the 8th of May. So if you're free that weekend and want to get involved, you certainly can do. To take part, you need to download the iNaturalist app and sign up for the UK National Parks Look Wild project. And I would suggest doing this before the day because phone signal on Dartmoor can be patchy at best. Devon Wildlife Trust have a host of interesting events coming up, from shoreline surveys at Wembury Beach, to bat talks, lichen surveys, and even a musical tribute to the beauty of the natural world. I'll put a link to their general events page on the notes, so you can have a browse if you're interested. Anyway, now that spring has well and truly sprung, if the weather this week is anything to go by, there are bound to be loads of things going on, so keep an eye out and feel free to get in touch if you see something worth sharing. But for now, I'm going to leave it there for this episode, and we'll sign off as usual by saying that I hope you feel inspired to do something, however small, to help your local wildlife. This podcast was narrated and produced by me, Emily Marbay, with music by Poddington Bear.